0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. It's going to take us just a few minutes to get there, so hang in with me. Uh, I'm going to do, We've got some background uh, work that we need to do before we uh, tear into Mark 4, and so... Um, As you're flipping there, uh, let me establish a couple things about the gospel of Mark. There are two things that is at the tip of Mark's mind when he begins writing the book. So if you go Mark chapter 1, the first 15 verses, there are two primary things that Mark is trying to get across. Here's the first one. And and this is right off, this is the first thing that Jesus says in the gospel of Mark are these words in Mark 1.15. That the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark is announcing... He is proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. It is here. It is going. It uh, is—God has just broken into the world in a new um, way. Mark is announcing that. And then in the first verse of the gospel, he also identifies this. It's not just that the kingdom of God is here. It's that the kingdom of God is here because the king is here, namely Jesus. This is Mark 1.1, where he says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ— the Son of God, and that Son of God title tracks all the way back to Daniel 7, to this one who would have an everlasting kingdom that would never fade, never fail. So, so Mark is announcing two things. The kingdom of God is here. God is breaking into the world right now, doing something unique right now in this moment. And the kingdom of God is here, namely because King Jesus is here. Okay, this is the first 15 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Now it's interesting, I want to try to answer this question. What does Jesus mean when he says in Mark 1 15 that the kingdom of God is at hand? What does he mean by that? And to, to start to answer that, you have to go back to the Old Testament first and kind of get this in our brain. That in the Old Testament, it was clear that God was king. Like God, God, it just, God didn't just appear to be king in the New Testament too here. God was already king. Let me give you a couple of, of uh, verses that kind of help describe this. So just that say really clearly that God had a throne in the Old Testament too. He was on that throne in the Old Testament. He was king in the Old Testament, has always been king. Uh, one place we see this is Psalms one hundred three nineteen. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It's pretty explicit. God is a king. His kingdom is ruling right now. Um, Psalms 145, 13 is, an, is another one. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So it's clear in the Old Testament. We have a king, his name is God in the Old Testament and he is ruling the affairs of man. For something to happen on planet earth, it first has to pass through the sovereign hands of God the King. Okay, so we get that in the Old Testament. So what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says that the kingdom that is already there in the Old Testament is now at hand in the New Testament in Mark 1. What does he mean by that? And I think to answer that, I would say, you know, put it something like this. That in the Old Testament, there was more hope than just for a God who would be king and rule the affairs of man from heaven. That there was a hope for more than that. There was anticipation for more than that. There was this growing hope in the Old Testament This enduring hope in the Old Testament of a God who would break back into this world. Who who would not just rule from heaven, but would break back into this world and save his people from sin and misery. Who would defeat all of their enemies and who would establish his reign on earth in a much more personal and tangible way. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he's talking about all of that. Not just God reigning from heaven, but now God breaking back into earth, subduing all of the people of God's enemies, namely Satan, sin, and death. And him now setting up his kingdom of righteousness and peace here on earth in a much more personal and tangible way. Jesus is announcing that's what's happening right now. Now that's one of the reasons that it's kind of used interchangeably. The gospel of the, or it's called the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the gospel, that these two things are inter, interlaced. That, that we're talking here, when we're talking about the kingdom of God is at hand, another way to say that would be this, is that the good news of the gospel is happening right now. It is upon us, is what Jesus is saying. Okay, now, there's a couple of things I want to make sure that we're, we're thinking about before we, can, before we can get to Mark 4 and see what's happening in Mark 4 clearly, as we talk about this idea of the kingdom of God being at hand. And so so first, we've got to make sure, and this this just goes for any time you're reading the Bible. You've got to make sure that you are hearing it like the original hearers would hear it. So it doesn't work for you to hear the Bible through your 21st century American lens. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of a first century man or woman who was Jewish and ask the question, how would they hear it? And and let me just try to give some substance to how they would have heard what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. In the Old Testament, there was this growing anticipation of this moment, of of God breaking back into earth um, in a new and fresh and powerful way, subduing the enemies, right? Setting up his reign and rule in a tangible and personal way. There was this growing anticipation of that in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was constantly stirring up hope for that moment in the hearts of, of the people of Israel. Now, if you were alive in the time of King David in the Old Testament, you would have been asking this question. Could this be the moment that God has promised? Could this be it? And then if you know how the story of David goes, you know that um, he uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and that sin causes the downturn of the kingdom. So you know all that hope fell apart. There was this great anticipation. Could this be it? And then the disappointment. And then you've got Solomon. And if you were alive in the times of Solomon, you'd be thinking, This might be it. We've never seen peace and prosperity like this. Surely this is what we're to expect. Surely this is what, this is what God is talking about in this king, in this kingdom. But if you know how the story of Solomon goes, you know that he had many wives, 700 wives. Uh, Men, can we just all agree that one's plenty? That is all I can keep up with right there. Seven, yeah, somebody says amen over there. That, that is plenty. And he has 700 concubines on top of that. And with that, the kingdom falls apart. All of this growing anticipation and then disappointment. And so now put yourself in the shoes of a first century man or woman, and you just heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God is here and it's now and I'm the king. Your ears would have been tingling in that moment. Now, with all that anticipation you had growing about this king and the kingdom, you would have tied that anticipation to some specific expectations. Like your expectation, like when you heard kingdom of God is at hand, the king is here, you filtered that. You interpreted that through your lens. And if you were a first century man or woman, this would be your lens— David, the kingdom of David, King David, Solomon, his kingdom, and that king. You're thinking this, God is about to come and crush the Roman oppressing army. That would have been the the primary way. You would have heard that. Your ears would have started to tingle. Maybe this is it. And your next thought would be, those Romans better watch out. There's about to be a million bodies laying in the road, and they're all going to be Roman. This would have been your next thought that go along with that. That anticipation had that specific expectation attached to it. Now, this is the ironic thing. When you start to read through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says in Mark 115, the kingdom of God is here. And then if you want a label for the first three chapters of Mark, this could be your label for the first three chapters. Kingdom demonstration. Jesus tells us nothing yet about the kingdom. All he says is that it's here. But then he starts to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And you know what's ironic over the first three chapters of Mark? There's no militia being trained. There's no coup being planned. There's no dead Roman soldiers laying in the street. There's none of that. You know what you have in the first three chapters of Mark? You have a leper, a social outcast, healed. You you have a demon-possessed man restored. You have sick men and women coming to Jesus and their sickness disappears. You have a man with a withered hand come to Jesus and it's healed. And Jesus is saying this, this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it is. No, no, no militia here. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. First three chapters, the kingdom of God demonstrated. And then if you want a label for chapter four, you might say it this way. It's the kingdom of God explained. It's the explanation. First three chapters, demonstration. Chapter four, explanation. Jesus now, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, opens his mouth and begins to teach people about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And he does this through two stories, two parables. To, two ways It's like saying, if you want to talk about the kingdom of God, it is like this. And he gives pictures of what the kingdom of God looks like. So he gives these two parables. And in these two parables, we're going to see two big things about the kingdom of God. Two things that Jesus wants us to know about what the kingdom of God is and how it operates. Two things. And we're going to start with the second parable first. So we're going to go down to the parable of the mustard seed, starting in verse 30. You see it? Verse 30. And Jesus says this, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows, it grows up and becomes larger than all, all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Here's the first thing we learn about the kingdom of God. What this parable is trying to show us, what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God in it, goes like this. The kingdom of God is surprising in its size. It's surprising in its size. So the the parable, if you want to know the point of the parable, it's in the contrast. Okay, so the contrast goes like this. We've got the tiniest of seeds, a little mustard seed, and then we've got a full-grown, really large tree over here. So a really tiny seed and a large tree. It's in that contrast. Jesus is saying, do you see what seems like really insignificant? Seems like a very little value. It's just a little seed. It's got really humble beginnings. It's really fragile and frail. It looks looks really insignificant when you look at it. But, but then when you look at the end of this road, what, what the tree becomes, if we just stop here, look at, the, look at the seed, we push pause on everything in the middle, and now we just look at the end of that seed as it's a full-grown tree, it looks pretty impressive. See, it's the contrast. These small beginnings with these really large endings. And Jesus is saying, welcome to the kingdom of God. What the kingdom of God is like is just like that. We've got really small beginnings But if you look down the road at what's coming down the pike for history, we've got a really big and glorious end to this thing. So let me just tease this out and how the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. So I want you to think about the life of Jesus. And I want you to think about how small the beginnings were in this whole movement that is what we know today as Christianity. So let me start it like this. God Almighty... God who is ruling the heavens. God who is the sovereign over everything. God, Jesus Christ, that big, ruling, powerful God, humbles himself, condenses himself into a single cell, and inserts himself into the womb of a teenage girl. Can we just all agree that's, that's a really small beginning? God Almighty into a single cell. Jesus is born in a manger. No pomp and circumstance around that. He is a no one from nowhere. He's from Nazareth. The the history with Nazareth, the word on the street with Nazareth, is nothing good comes from there. He's the son of a carpenter. He lives for 33 years and then is falsely accused and murdered on a cross. And and by the time he, he is falsely accused and murdered, his disciples, his small little band of followers are all running scared. When you pick back up the story in Acts chapter one and two, you see that small little band is 120 people who are scared to death. They've gathered in a little room trying to pick up the broken pieces of their life. Now I'm just saying this, if you were putting your money on something, this is not the horse you would bet on to become a mustard tree. That, that little seed, there's no way that little seed's going to turn into that big thing down the road. Okay, now I want you to flip over to, to Revelation. And I want to show you three pictures of the full-grown mustard tree. Starts really small. God in a single cell. Nowhere from, nobody from nowhere. This whole picture of the small beginnings. And now Revelation is going to show us these massive pictures of what the kingdom of God becomes. So we've got three of these. The first one's going to be in Revelation 7. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. And I love the, uh, the label over this little section. in my Bible says this, a great multitude from every nation. This is what the kingdom of God's going to be like. A great multitude from every nation. It says this, after this I look, John is giving us a sneak peek into the future here. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Let me just say that one more time. Here's what John saw down the road in heaven. The kingdom of God, full grown. A great multitude that no one could number. From every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the full grown view of the kingdom of God. We go from, from Jesus being falsely accused and tried, 12 disciples running scared, to the, the upper room where we've got 120 of his followers kind of packed into a room, scared to death. And now we look down the road, that's the seed. Now we look down the road to the full grown tree and here's what we see, a multitude that you can't count. Now, isn't that something? Genesis talks about it like this, that we're talking about Abraham's descendants, the people of God down the road, the full blown kingdom of God, it's going to be like sand on the seashores. Good luck numbering those. That's what he's saying. A multitude from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what the kingdom of God's going to be like. That's the full size of the kingdom of God. This is the little seed of the kingdom growing into the full tree of the kingdom. This is what we can expect down the road. And then he goes on. Look at Revelation 19. Picture number two, Revelation 19. Now, just to warn you of this Revelation 19 picture of Jesus, this is going to be different than the Jesus you probably got acquainted with in Sunday school. The meek and mild Jesus. This is crazy Jesus right here. This is powerful Jesus right here. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw, and it'll be on the screen for you as well. This is John speaking again. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. They don't teach that in first grade Sunday school. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following uh, him on, on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the full-grown tree of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus, God Almighty, not meek and mild, willing to be beaten to death by his own creation. This is Jesus, as he is today, all-powerful ruler of the universe, on his white uh, horse, sword at his side, tattoo on his thigh, flaming eyes, coming to get justice. That's Jesus. Jesus. And this this is Jesus coming to secure peace and righteousness within his kingdom. This is him coming to destroy all of his enemies of Satan, sin, and death that he defeated on the cross. This is the picture of King Jesus, full-grown kingdom of God here. That's the picture. See, that that small little seed that we saw Jesus condensing himself into a a single cell looks a lot different when it's full-grown, doesn't it? And then go to Revelation 21. One more picture of the kingdom of God here. And if you ever need a place in the Bible to turn to, to give you hope and to stir up in you anticipation for what is to come, Revelation 21 is your place. Listen to what it says about um, what is to come in the kingdom of God for us. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Won't that be a good day? Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And I love this phrase. To the thirsty, to, to those who are longing for something more, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God And he will be my son. That's what the full-blown view of the kingdom of God looks like. That, Revelation 21. I don't know if you've ever had those moments in your life where you have just had this overwhelming sensation. And by the way, these moments predominantly happen for me like when I'm on a beach in the shade with plenty of sunscreen on, a book in hand, and my wife at my side. But it's one of those moments where you just look up and you have this thought this is what life is supposed to be like. I mean, this is it. Whatever life is supposed to be like, this has got to be it. This has got to be how God designed this thing to work. You ever had that moment? That probably has been a long time for many of us in the room because life has a way of beating that to death, of just suppressing that. But you, you know that moment right there where you just had that, this is what life is supposed to be. You know where that longing came from? All the way back from Genesis 1 and 2 and the garden and how God originally made the earth to work, made the world to work. That longing is there by God. And you know where it's going to find its fulfillment? N- not, not now, not, not in this world, but in the new one. When the new heavens and the new earth drop down and makes this earth new. That's when you're going to see that. That's when you're going to feel that. And and this is the Revelation 21 description of that. It says this about that that moment of the kingdom of God coming down to the kingdom of this world. Overcoming it. Taking its place. It says this about that moment. That that God is going to be face to face with his people. Can you imagine that moment? God's going to be face to face with his people. And do you know what happens when God is face-to-face with his people? Everything else is as it should be. That The Hebrews had a word for it. They called it shalom. That that when we are face-to-face with God, that everything is working. Everything is put together. Everything is as it should be. Life is working. No no, no more pain when we're face-to-face with God no more heartache, no more disappointment, no more unexpected death, no more loss, no more injury when we're face to face with God. And here's what Jesus is saying in this parable. That is the size and the scope of the kingdom of God. That's what's coming. See, see, maybe you could think of it this way. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is saying this, you know all these kingdoms that look so powerful to you? Like, you, you turn Fox News, CNN, whatever your little news of, you know, wherever you go for your news, or if you want to call that entertainment news, I don't know what that stuff is. But wherever you go for that, think about what, what they are saying. Kingdoms of this worldwide, what they're saying has all the power. And, and here's what Jesus is saying here. You know what, you know what about those kingdoms? That those kingdoms that look so powerful and impenetrable and invincible to you know, right now, you, you know what's going to happen to those things? They're going to come and go. They're going to come and go. But do you know the thing that's going to outlast, outlive, endure them all? Do you know the thing that's going to outlive them all? Me, my kingdom. That's the kingdom that when we look a million years down the road and everything that you know of today, every little powerful kingdom you know of today has faded away, my kingdom is going to be Revelation 21. My, My kingdom will endure. My kingdom will last. This is what Jesus is saying, that for every person in the kingdom of God, that is what you can expect. Yeah. Revelation 7, Revelation 19, Revelation 21, that's what's coming. Okay, now here, here's the turn. We're going to go back to the other parable now. It, that really begs the question when we start to see the size and the scope of the kingdom of God, it begs this question, why is it more of that breaking into our world now? Like if that's the, if that's the full-grown tree of the kingdom, If this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like someday, why aren't we experiencing more of that kingdom someday in the future right now? Why not more now? Why not more of that kingdom breaking into our world? That's the first parable. Parable of the growing seed answers that question. And here's what it says. Verse 26. And Jesus said, So the first thing we learn, learn, parable of the mustard seed, is the size of the kingdom. The surprising side. In this parable, the parable of the growing seed, here's what we learn about the kingdom of God. We learn about the surprising growth of the kingdom of God. That it grows in ways that you would not expect it to grow, in surprising ways. And so there's there's three little things about the growth of the kingdom I want to point out. Here's the first one. The first one is attached to this idea of the seed. That, that here's how the kingdom of God starts, with something as small and insignificant as a seed. That, that small, that insignificant. I mean, if I'm talking about the kingdom of God, here's what I would want it to sound like. I mean, it's like a lightning bolt out of heaven. It's like hot lava, like thunder, like something big, makes a big bang. But it's not that. It's something as small as a seed, insignificant as a seed. And I think we're supposed to learn something from that, about the growth of the kingdom. That the growth of the kingdom is gradual. It is gradual growth. Um, We installed Dave Hansen last week as a pastor of our church. And it was funny, a few, this had been several months ago, he was telling a story about his sons. And the story was basically him trying to convince his sons that he had magical watermelon seeds. And his sons were young enough to buy it. <laughs> I love it. So, so he, here was the, uh, the, the plot that he had. I'm going to convince them that I can plant a magical watermelon seed, and magically the next day there's going to be a watermelon appear there. This is the magical watermelon seed. So they go out. He's got two young boys, twin boys. They plant the seed, and that night after the kids go to sleep, Dave goes to the store, buys a full-grown watermelon, puts it on top of the seed. His kids wake up the next morning, and lo and behold, to their amazement, the seeds are actually magical. A full-grown watermelon is sitting right where they planted the seed. And you know, it's funny because I honestly think that's how a lot of us want the kingdom of God to work. We want it to be a magical seed. A seed that is one day planted, and then magically we wake up the next day, and the watermelon's there. But can I just tell you that is not how seeds grow. That's not how the kingdom of God grows. There is no such thing as a magical seed in the kingdom of God. There's a powerful seed called the gospel. And and when it gets into your heart, it's going to grow. But that's going to take time to do that. If you want the reason why more of the kingdom of God out there, Revelation 21 is not breaking into our world now. Here's the answer. The kingdom of God is designed to grow gradually, not all at once. It, it's designed to grow moment by moment. It's present right now in its beginnings, but, but its fullness is still in the future. That's the kingdom of God. It has started now in seed form, and it is growing and growing and growing, and one day it's going to take on its fullness, and it's going to be Revelation 21. But it's a gradual growth. And can I just take a, a second to stop and apply this to our lives? I, I want to free a lot of us up in the room because I, I think a lot of us live with this assumption that we're going to become a Christian and tomorrow we're going to be the Apostle Paul. And can I just say, that's not how this thing works. It's not how it works. It's not how spiritual growth works. Your growth into Christ-likeness is meant to be a slow, long process. I mean, it's kind of frustrating, isn't it? I mean, I look at some things in my life and I just have like these frustrating moments of like, God, it seems like these things have been there forever and they're not going away. And you know what I think God wants to tell us in those moments? Be patient. The the seed's growing. You know, I've kind of gotten into this gardening thing lately. And here's one thing that I've noticed about growing plants. Is they grow frustratingly slow if you went and put a chair out in front of my garden and just sat there and waited to watch growth, guess what? You're never going to see it. That's how slow the growth is. It requires not for you to sit and stare at it for for all day to see it. It requires you to leave it for a month, to come back in a month, and then take another look at it. And then you see inches on the plant, right? And this is how spiritual growth works for you too. And so I you know, for wives in here that have an expectation of their husband that tomorrow they're going to be Jesus, not going to happen. And for husbands who want the same for their wife, not going to happen. For parents who really want their kids to be the Apostle Paul by the age of 13, probably not going to happen. The kingdom growth is meant to be slow. It's gradual. It's obedience over the long haul. That's what, it, that's what it, we're after there. So, the, so we learn about this growth of the kingdom, that it's gradual growth. But here's the second thing we learned about this growth, this surprising growth, is that the kingdom of God, the growth of it is inevitable. It's inevitable. Look at verse 28. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full, gro- full grain in the ear. That, that word, the earth produces, that word produces right there, is the word automos. It's where we would get the word like automatic, spontaneous. That when you put that seed, that gospel seed in the ground of a person's heart, that thing is going to grow. It is going to do something. It is inevitable. Jesus is saying this in, in this little story here. That you know that Revelation 21 picture? You, you know that Revelation 7 picture of a multitude that you can't even begin to number? You know that Revelation 19 picture of Jesus on the white horse? That is inevitable. That is inevitable. There is no stopping that. It is coming for all of us, one way or the other. This is what he's saying. The kingdom of God is inevitable. It, that, that picture is going to happen. Now, let me attempt to, uh, to kind of get this down into the grind of our lives here. Like, well, what, is that, what is knowing that, that it's inevitable, that the kingdom of God has that sort of size, and although it's gradual growth, that growth is going to happen. What, what, what should that do in a person's life? Like, why is Jesus telling us this stuff? And let me uh, answer that question first with an illustration. It's a little bit hard to admit this, but I'm a Cowboys fan. Is that hard to admit for anyone else? I kind of feel like I need to look down, not make eye contact when I say that. (laughs) I I am a Cowboys fan. And let's just be honest, if you want to root for a team that's going to give you wins, they're not your team. If you want to root for a team that will likely give you a heart attack, they're your team. That's where you need to go. They have this uncanny ability to make every game much more dramatic than it should be. I mean, have y'all noticed that about them? It is crazy. And uh, to, to go on top of that, if you were to watch a Dallas Cowboy game with me, here's what you would notice. Who is that guy? What just happened to the Rodney I normally know? I mean, there is something like wrong with me when I start— and I, God's working on me in this. There's some ideology that's being uprooted at, right now as we speak. But man, I, when, I, when I'm watching a Dallas Cowboy football game, I feel like I am on an emotional roller coaster. You ever been on one of those? Where like the span of my emotional kind of levels in the course of a game— goes from a 10, I just, I, I'm the happiest person on the planet in this moment. And then something happens, and it always happens with them, and now I'm a one. I just went from a 10 to like as low as you can go down here. I mean, it, it's the, and by the way, this is the, the frustrating part about watching the Cowboys, is that happens in the span of like 0.2 seconds, there to there. It is crazy. Everything is going great. It is going wonderful. We've got a great drive going. And then all of a sudden, Desiree, the wrong route. He's over there signing autographs in the first row. And you're like, we're playing a football game here. You're signing autographs. It's going great. We can look so good one series. And then it literally looks like we're paying, playing like Pee Wee football, seventh grade football the next. It is unbelievable the, the roller coaster emotionally that I get on when I watch the Cowboys. Now, there's this invention called like Dish TV, this thing called TiVo, where you can actually record a game. It's amazing, isn't it? I'll never forget the first time that, uh, that, that we recorded a game. I got home and I looked at the score and I knew that we won. I knew the score. I, I knew the score. And then I turned the game on and do you know what was absolutely amazing? I never got on the emotional roller coaster. Like when, when I knew the score, it still kind of bothers me that Dez is like giving autographs in the first row when the game's going. It still kind of bothers me, but, it, but, but it's, it's not that bad. And it still kind of bothers me that Romo throws another interception, but, but like it's survivable. Why? Because I know that we win in the end. Okay, now let's just take that, that picture and apply that to what Jesus is teaching here. Here's what Jesus is showing us in this in these two parables: that everyone that is in Christ, you have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. For everyone that's in the kingdom of God, that your teammate is Jesus. Here is what you need to know about your life. In the end, you win. That's what he's telling us here. That at the end of the day, here is what you can expect: all of Jesus' enemies get destroyed. And he subdues the kingdom. He reigns with righteousness and peace. This is life in the kingdom. You can expect that. Jesus is saying, listen, will you look down the road and will you look at the scoreboard? Will you see that you win in the end? And here's what that produces. Now, when it seems like you've got this temporary setback, an interception in life, when when something just falls apart, somebody runs the wrong route, when life is not going the way that it should go, do you know what that produces in you? Poise. Do you know what it produces in you? These moments where it feels like life just got ripped out from underneath you. When it's like your breath just got taken away by life in a fallen world. Do you, do you know what, what happens when you can actually see down the road and what's coming for every person in Christ? Those moments no longer shatter you. When we get off the roller coaster in life, we're good and bad. We're, we're not like up here in a 10 and up, to, you know, down here at a one in and, and two seconds. That when we see the scoreboard, it gives us this poise to live with. It gives us this poise that we can take in life in its goodness and its badness and be okay. Th- th- this is what he's saying here. This is why he's giving you this. And we have had a really rough week. Um... First of all, we had a person in our home group who her brother got shot to death on Friday afternoon. That is life in a fallen world beating someone to death right there. We have um, this week dealt with multiple marriages that are in a really, really, really difficult season in life. Over the past three months, we have um, walked with a couple as they lost a newborn. And can I tell you the only thing that at the end of the day is like the foundational, you know, piece of concrete that that lays under all of that. So you have like feet that are not on sand but are on rock, is knowing that Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Starts out so small, but look down the road of that. Look at the scoreboard and see that in the end, if you're in Christ, you win. Every tear will be made up for and turned into joy. Every loss will be repaid. Everything that's broken will one day be fixed. This is what he's saying. And then lastly, we learn this about, the gro- about growth in the kingdom of God. We learned that the kingdom of God's growth all belongs to God. It's all God's. L- look at verse 26 and 27. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Okay, now if you're going to interpret parables, here's one good thing to think about in interpreting them. To find the point of the parable, you need to look at what is emphasized or what is exaggerated. And I want you to notice what is exaggerated in verse 27. The farmer has just sown seed, and now watch what's exaggerated. What does the farmer do now? He sleeps, and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So the farmer sows the seed, and what else does the farmer do? Answer, nothing. Sleeps. That's what else he does. Now, we know that a farmer obviously does more than that in growing a crop. We know that a farmer fertilizes, a farmer uh, fights off bugs, a farmer weeds. He does all of those things. Jesus is is exaggerating to make his point. And the point is this. Life in the kingdom of God, growth in the kingdom of God, the expansion of the kingdom of God is not the work of the farmer. It is the work of God. It is 100% dependent upon God. All the things that we want most in life, all of those things, your spiritual growth being one of them, growth in your marriage, growth in your kids, the salvation of your kids, the salvation of a friend, growth in the kingdom of God, Revelation 21 picture of the kingdom of God coming down to earth. Those things are 100% dependent upon God. They are all in God's hands. This is what he's saying in this parable. Is Here's what's surprising about kingdom growth. Is at the end of the day, it's God who grows it. It is God who does it. It is 100% in the hands of God to grow the kingdom of God. You're not going to find a place in the Bible where it's going to say this, hey, you go build the kingdom. Doesn't say that. Here's what it says. It is God who builds the kingdom. We, we get to participate in that, but it's God who builds the kingdom. Now, in light of that, I want to end with two points of application that, uh, that I'd love for you to think about. Two points as we're thinking about our involvement in the 100% work of God of building the kingdom what our involvement is in that, how we come around that, how God uses you and I in that. And let me give you two things. Two points of application. The kingdom of God, it's huge in its size. It's surprising in its growth. It is all God's doing to grow it. Two application points. Number one, one of our jobs that God has given us is to be a faithful farmer. In other words, we are to be a people who are constantly and consistently sowing the seeds of the gospel. So we're to be people who are sowing the seeds of the gospel in our marriage sowing the seeds of the gospel in our own heart, sowing the seeds of the gospel within our kids, sowing the seeds of the gospel in our neighborhoods, sowing the seeds of all that God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus' perfect life in place of our imperfect life is death on the cross for our sin, is resurrection from the dead on the third day, that we are to be a people who are consistently and constantly sowing those seeds everywhere we go. So can I just ask you that question? Are you a faithful farmer? Are you sowing the seeds of the gospel everywhere you go? In conversation, in your neighborhood, at your workplace. Everywhere you go, sowing consistently these gospel seeds. This is one thing that the farmer can do. The farmer cannot make the seed grow, but the farmer can come along and sow a lot of seed and ask God to grow it. Here's the second thing. Number one, we can sow gospel seed. Number two is this. And this is going to be so... uh, it's gonna feel so small to us. But at the end of the day, it is so large in God's economy. Is we have this beautiful and wonderful opportunity to pray. We get to pray. You know, it's it's we talked about the Lord's prayer last week and last week we talked about the first two words of it. That the Lord's prayer starts like this, "Our Father." But do you remember how it goes on? What it goes on to say? It goes on to ask, the first, the first two things to ask, I want to make sure you see this. The first two things that we are to ask God to do in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, here's the first one, hallowed be your name. Make your name famous on this planet. That, that's number one, we're supposed to ask God. Here's the second one. Make like your kingdom in heaven, make that thing right there, your kingdom in heaven on earth. I keep saying this, that there is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus said it was. It is broken in. But here's the thing. It is still gradually growing. It will one day be Revelation 21. But right now it is gradually growing. And according to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying this. I want you to be a people who are asking God, who alone controls the growth and the expansion of the kingdom, for you to be a people who are praying that God would break more and more into this world. That the kingdom of God, Revelation 7, Revelation 19, Revelation 21, would be breaking in more and more in power to this world right now where you and I live. That we are to be a people who are praying for that, pleading with God for that, asking God to do that. The Westminster Catechism, question 102, asks this question. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? So when we're praying for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what are we asking God to do? Here's the answer. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray. This is what we're praying when we say that. That Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. Now, could we use some of that around here? Satan's kingdom would be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. Could we use some of that? Grace advance in your own heart, in your life, in your marriage, in your kids, in your neighborhood. That the kingdom of grace may be advanced. Ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. And the kingdom of glory, the Revelation 21 picture, kingdom of glory, may be hastened. That's what we're praying. That's what we are to pray. When we say, God, your kingdom come now, we are saying, God, will you destroy what Satan is doing now? Will you advance and grow your kingdom more now? Will you break in with more power, more grace, more mercy right now in my neighborhood, in my life, In my my workplace right now, will you do that? And so I want to end our service by actually praying for that. A little bit of of a different way we're going to end. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and bow your head and pray with me. And we're going to spend the last few minutes this morning praying for that right there. That God would do that. That God would be faithful to grow his kingdom. And, And that we would be faithful farmers who are praying and pleading with God to do just that. So I'm going to direct you just for the next few minutes as we do this. And and I want to encourage you just to to pray for God's kingdom to come right now in these few areas. And and why don't we start just with your own heart and life. There's not a person in here who doesn't need more of the kingdom of God to come into them right now. So, So maybe you could pray that against the plot and ploys of Satan That grace would advance in your life. That the seed of the gospel would grow in your life. take a second to pray for your marriage and or family husband wife son daughter brother sister mom dad that the kingdom of god would break into their life in surprising and shocking ways satan's work would be destroyed god's work would be growing and growing and growing And let's take a second to pray this for your neighborhood. And rather than praying, you know, generally for your neighborhood, what, what if you prayed for specific men and women, specific neighbors by name, that the kingdom of God would break through their heart and into their life? And lastly, why don't we pray for our community? And specifically, when we're talking about our community, why don't we pray for God's mercy and His grace upon the churches in our community? I think it would be God's will if the kingdom of God is going to break through with great force in our community, our area Mansfield, Cedar Hill, Midlothian, Waxahachie, Maypearl, this surrounding area that if that's going to happen, that is going to be through God breaking into his churches. So, so maybe you could just pray by name for the churches that you know in the area that God would pour out extraordinary grace and mercy, that God would be using all the churches in our area for the good of our community, the good of men and women. And lastly, um, you know, in in these two parables, we've got a sober warning and we have got an incredibly beautiful invitation. And here is the sober warning. For all who have like ears to hear and eyes to see this morning, here's the warning. That we can either come into the kingdom of God through Jesus. We can either come into the kingdom of God or we will one day be crushed by the kingdom of God. And man, if you're, if you're here this morning, I want you to know that we don't want you to be crushed by it. We want to celebrate your coming into it. But with this sober warning, there is this great invitation that Jesus is not just the king of the kingdom, that Jesus is also the door into the kingdom. He is the path through the kingdom. The person and work of Jesus, that he came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sin, raised from the dead on the third day. And it is that and that alone that gains you entrance into the kingdom of God. So if there's never been a moment where you've held up your life and said, God, I am trusting Jesus to save me, to rescue me. God, have me. There's never been that moment. I pray that this would be it. This would be the moment that you walk into and come into the kingdom of God. It is through Jesus that we are adopted into the family of God, made right with God, reconciled to God. And that invitation is open to you today. So God, we pray for great mercy on each of us. God, we pray that your powerful kingdom and its fullness— would break right now into our lives, into our church, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our city. And God, we would get to celebrate as the farmer who has sowed some seed, the wonderful work of God that has grown it. So God, will you do that? We pray that you might. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.